Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stay in touch while you chill out. Join the summer conversation. Only on Cape Talk. Only on Cape Talk. It's time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. And of course, uh, Dr. Chris Smith joins us every week this time. And Chris, good morning. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Happy Jeremy. New Year, and Jeremy. incidentally, and incident- um, our Prime Minister, David Cameron, left his daughter mm-hmm. in a pub when she was about five. Uh, and oh. I think they'd gone out for a pub lunch. And they all left as a family because he's got three kids and drove off. And they got some way down the road before I think one of them said, well, where's I think her name's Florence. Where's Florence? Oh, we've left her in the pub. This is the prime minister of as he was at the time of the UK. And they went back and got her. She was fine. She was in. I don't think she was enjoying a pint, but she was she was still in the pub. (laughs) Oh, that's a nice one. Thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate that story. Chris, we have many questions for you as usual. I'm going to start off with the first one. Um, hello, Dr. Chris. Proud parents often take photographs of the newborn baby. So because of insufficient lighting, they use a flash on the camera. Could this not be damaging to the baby's eyes? And having just come from a dark place for nine months, surely it would be like looking into the sun. And this comes from Henry. Is it bad to take photos with a flash of your newborn baby? Hi, Henry. It certainly can be a shock for a baby, but I, I don't think it's going to be enormously harmful because this has happened to so many, let's face it, billions of people around the world over the years. We don't think we're all the poorer for it. In fact, there are many lives that are richer because they have those wonderful pictures with which to humiliate us when we get older, don't they? But it's not strictly true to say babies have been in a dark place because in fact, there's, there, there are some bits of light that do filter through, very, very low-level light, but there's a lot of infrared, there's a lot of heat that goes through, and babies are already tuning into their environment very, very well. And researchers have done studies where they've shone light through the wall of the uh, abdomen of, uh, of pregnant women and made face-shaped projections on the inside wall of the abdomen and babies look at those face-shaped projections for much longer than they would look at other stimuli. And their brain behaviour changes in accordance when they see a pattern resembling a face. So they are sensitive to uh, the environment that they're in. And it's not a completely dark environment. They're being uh, assailed by some photons from largely heat, but also some stray light signals when the woman's in a very bright area could make it through at at low intensity. But you can shine light at babies in the uterus and and they do respond to it. Whether or not a flash is going to make a big difference with the odd photograph I think it may be discomfort and certainly young children's eyes are much more sensitive to bright lights than adults are. I know when I used to take my daughter to sort of bonfire parties and things, 
she would say, this bonfire is too bright, I can't look at this. And I would be surprised because I'd be staring at it quite comfortably so that there is greater sensitivity in smaller, younger eyes. But I don't think to the point of detriment, the energy in a flash is not going to be high enough to cause long-term damage, I wouldn't think, if, if you take the odd baby snap. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. Appreciate that answer. Um, another one coming in. What is ocular myasthenia gravis? It comes from Dean. Well, myasthenia gravis, my, M-Y in front of things, means muscles. And the condition myasthenia gravis is where the neuromuscular junction, which is the connection between a nerve that controls a muscle, a motor neuron, and the muscle, goes wrong. Because under normal circumstances, you control muscles by sending signals down motor nerves. Those motor nerves at what's called a motor end plate deluge one part of the muscle surface with the chemical acetylcholine which is a nerve transmitter. The muscle listens to this signal and then in response sends a burst of electrical activity and calcium through the muscle and that makes it get shorter and contract. If something gets in the way of that nerve signal getting into the muscle, then you effectively divorce the ability to control the muscle properly with the nerve. And this is the condition myasthenia gravis and it's an autoimmune condition. For some reason, some people make antibodies which soak up their own transmitter at that point and so they can't see the signal coming out of the nerve properly and one of the signs that someone's got myasthenia gravis is their eyelids can be a bit droopy so when you see a person they look almost like they're half half asleep and it's because of droopy eyelids and this is because the signals from the levator palpebrae which is the muscle that elevates the eyelid and opens your eyes for you, those signals are a bit impeded, so you get slightly droopy eyelids. Luckily, uh, we can treat this condition. We can find in some cases what the underlying cause is, and there's, in some cases you need a surgery to, to remove what the underlying cause is. In other cases, we can give drugs that pep up the level of the acetylcholine transmitter, and this helps to outcompete the troublesome antibodies and restore the correct communication between the nerve and the muscle. Um, but this is the reason it happens, and um, thankfully it's one of those things that we can spot and we can help people with. Great stuff. Uh, my guest is Dr. Chris Smith, as usual, the Naked Scientist with us on a Friday morning from 9.30 through to 10. Please get your questions in. Uh, anything science or med medically, med <laughs> medically related, 021-446-0567, That is the WhatsApp line. Cherie in Pinelands, thank you so much for calling in. What is your question for Dr. Chris? Um, good morning, um, Dr. Chris. My question actually came from my son. He asked me if there is a disease or condition whereby you are technically sick, but it works as an advantage against something else, like protects you from another disease or another condition. And oh, I had no answer. Sherry, th th that's a lovely question. And it's very relevant to the African continent because the one that springs immediately to my mind is sickle cell anemia very common among certain populations of African countries. This is where you inherit a change in the structure of your haemoglobin. It switches one genetic letter in the haemoglobin. Valine uh, is the amino acid, is switched in for glutamic acid. And this has the effect of altering the shape of the haemoglobin, the red oxygen-carrying molecule in your blood cells, very subtly, so that when they end up in a low oxygen condition, the blood cell changes shape because the haemoglobin forms a different crystalline structure. So instead of being a nice round circle, it forces the red blood cells to become almost spindle-shaped and they don't pass through small blood vessels so easily. They lodge. 
Now this, in uh, certain circumstances, can be very destructive because the blood cells get broken down, so this leaves a person with anemia, hence the name sickle cell anemia, but it also has the impact that it can starve downstream territories of adequate blood flow, and this can mean it's painful. And it can also do damage because it cuts off the blood flow to those pits of the body. And so it's both painful and harmful. So what's the advantage, I hear you ask? Well, under certain circumstances, people are exposed to malaria. It turns out that the malaria parasite does not tolerate being in blood cells with sickled haemoglobin. So therefore, you tend to see in populations who are being subjected to high pressure from malaria a high representation of sickle cell anemia, or higher. So it's what we call a balanced polymorphism. You're paying a price by having sickle cell anemia, but you're gaining an advantage in certain environments through having that disadvantage, which gives you back an advantage because you can't succumb so easily to a disease that would otherwise cause enormous destruction to your population. So the frequency of the gene that causes the condition increases in the population. Okay. Uh, Cherie, thank, oh, you. thank you. Any questions for the naked scientist, Dr. Chris Smith? Roger in Durbanville. Hi, Dr. Chris. I recently saw a TV program about a particular American warship, and during its act, which is now a museum, and during its active career, they mentioned that there were 360 deaths on board, twice as many from suicide as from action. Now, that parallels what I've read about the British troops in the Falklands War, that twice as many subsequently committed suicide as were killed in, in the war itself. Presumably, this is related to PTSD. But would these be isolated examples, or is it um, a much wider phenomenon, in which case surely the numbers must be horrendous? I do profess to not being an expert on this particular topic, but what I will say is that uh, having spoken to forces personnel who have both been in action but also in areas where they might be called up at any moment in time, there are experiences that those people have that can be extremely traumatic, as you say, PTSD. You're also in a very artificial circumstance. When you're cooped up in a high-pressure environment with the same group of people for long periods of time, no way to let off steam and then you leave that environment, the change, the human body does not sometimes react well to abrupt change where you're completely wrenched from one environment to another, one way of thinking to another. And this can have long-term repercussions on people's mental health. And it, you do find that people who've been forces personnel are way overrepresented among people who need help for mental health problems in the aftermath, especially if they've been in very stressful situations on the battlefield, for example, but also just in the environment leading up to being on the battlefield or coming home from the battlefield. So I suspect that you're, you're quite right, that this is not an isolated phenomenon, that this is because someone's looked something where they've got data that supports that. But certainly if you ask charities and mental health trusts and so on who work with people who've been demobbed from the army, they will say that if you compare your average person who's seen action um, and you compare their likelihood of needing to seek mental health support with members of the general population, you find a big blip, a big spike there because um, people are, uh, because of the experiences they've had, much more likely, especially if they're at a more tender, fragile disposition, they're more likely to need help in the aftermath. And I think that's probably one and the same as what you're describing. 
Roger in Durbanville. Roger, thank you for that question. My guest is Dr. Chris Smith. He's the Naked Scientist. He's with us till 10 o'clock. So get those questions in, all the science-related questions. Um, 021-446-0567, That is the WhatsApp line. You can voice note or send us a text. Uh, talking about the WhatsApp line, we have a voice note for you, Dr. Chris. Hi, Chris. It's Gavin from Tukai. Um, this is a bit of a specific MET question. I've been a pilot for 42 years and have become amazed with weather and meteorology, weather patterns, etc. What I haven't been able to explain fully is why when the southeaster howls in Cape Town, we always get huge storms in the interior of the country. Hello, Gavin. Well, a difficult one because... I'm not a meteorologist, but what I can say is that the reason we get winds or that we get movements of air masses, which is what winds are, around the planet's surface is because of pressure differences. Air and gases move from areas of high pressure to areas of lower pressure. What causes the higher pressure? Well, thermal effects. When the sun heats patches of the Earth's surface or patches of the ocean and those in turn heat the overlying air, you create areas of pressure difference and then you create movement or stimulus for movement of air. You also have different layers in the atmosphere. You'll know this, Gavin, as, a, as an aviator. You'll know that you have different layers where air is moving at different rates and in different directions and there are forces which are exerted by one against the other and those in turn also have an effect. You can draw air up from the poles, which has the effect of pulling very cold air from down south or up north if you live up north. This is what happened with the a bomb cyclone, as they were calling it, up in the Americas last week and the week before when they saw very dramatic falls in temperature. So you can move masses of air around. So if you have a really strong set of, of winds or air movements, of course it's not going to be an isolated phenomenon. If one thing's moving a lot, there's probably another thing moving a lot and it's coming from somewhere else. These things are all worked or massed together they're all integrated and there are knock-on effects. It's a bit like a giant spider web where all the strands are connected and if you cut a few, the shape of everything changes. And this is why predicting the weather is so difficult and has some of the most powerful computers the world owns doing those sorts of prediction tasks. The UK Met Office has got computers that cover... I think a couple of football fields now, which are doing the number crunching and the calculations to work out all these complicated interrelationships. If I change this bit here, what does it do to these other five things over here, 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 here and here? And the repercussions and, and the calculations of those repercussions and then rolling the timing forward to make the longer term predictions. Very, very difficult, very, very computer hungry, but we are beginning to get quite good at it because the weather forecasts now are, are very good and very accurate, particularly for parts of the world where there is very good coverage by satellites and by other meteorological uh, measuring systems. So the bottom line is that there will be consequences whenever there is a, a, a strong weather phenomenon in one place because of the interconnectedness of all of the environmental factors that go into making the weather happen. Dr. Chris Smith is the NATO Naked Scientist. We're taking your calls 021-446-0567. Um, Dr. Smith, what does it mean to be double-jointed? How does it form and what are the benefits uh, and cons? It comes from Angelina. Oh, hi, Angelina. Well, in medicine, but you know, you you get disabused of some of these popular myths when you learn medicine um, that tend to we tend to grow up with. And being double jointed is one of those things you sort of demonstrated to your classmates of your thumb bending back the wrong way and saying, "Look, I can do this." Some of that is because when we're little, we're much more supple. 
we haven't got bony prominences called osteophytes growing out the sides of our bones and things to get in the way. So our joints tend to move much more easily. Everything's a lot more fluid. And you, you can describe the kinds of movements that make adults cringe. But there are some people in the population, they don't have double joints or some special kind of joint, but what they do have is more stretchy or lax joints because of inherit, inherited conditions. There are some alterations to some of the connective tissues the composition of the connective tissues in the body genetically which can make some people have slacker or looser joints Uh, one of those is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome for example and this is where you alter I believe that one's a collagen change but you change the connective tissue composition and it's a bit more springy than it would otherwise be meaning that the movement or range of movements of different parts of the body is slightly greater there are more degrees of freedom than you would enjoy if you didn't have that condition and as a result of that you, you can describe wider ranges of movement with some body parts but it comes at a cost there are knock-on consequences to having slacker, more lax body parts. A friend of mine who does a lot of um, semi-professional sport uh, has now ended up having to have certain joints operated on to stabilise them because she has that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, another question coming through. Um, does the human body have a natural propensity to rhythm, particularly when exposed to music where drums are used for a regular beat? Hassan Shabuddin uh, wants to know the answer to that question, though. Hello, Hassan. The answer is almost certainly yes. And not just the human body, but across the animal kingdom, you find rhythm, synchronicity, and particularly sound synchronicity as playing a really important role. Just look in the air and look at starlings and and other birds that flock, and you see them making these dramatic sweeping curves and and twists in the sky as they murmurate or twist and spiral. And this kind of synchronicity is is replayed all throughout nature. Mosquitoes, when they mate, the male and female mosquitoes will signal that they like each other by synchronising their wing beats. So the male uh, and female will change the the beating patterns of their wings to make them beat in sync. Uh, In humans, we march in sync. We sing in sync. We play drums in sync. There is not a coincidence there that this is so common across societies, across cultures, even cultures that are, are sort of um, way back in history. There's evidence that uh, our ancestors were playing primitive musical instruments. So the the whole idea of having rhythm and so on is very important to us and the way we've, we've evolved, but also other animals have evolved. And when it comes to music and dance, This is true as well. There was a paper just before Christmas that came out, actually, where scientists were able to show that certain frequencies, when present in music, also make people more likely to dance. They actually did a study at a university in America where they played, um, or it was a pop concert, rock concert, they played some of these frequencies at certain points during the concert, and they got people at the concert to wear movement detectors and they didn't know why they were wearing the movement detectors and they didn't know when they were going to turn this particular range of frequencies on or off in the concert and the audience were not aware when they were on because they're so low in frequency that most people don't perceive them as a sound and they found that people were 12 to 20 percent more likely to dance when those sounds were present so yes there are certainly susceptibilities in us to certain types of sound that make us more likely to want to dance and some people are probably even more susceptible to them than others thank you dr chris uh, janush in fishuk hello janus your question hi hi good morning to you uh, jeremy and, and chris J- uh, can you 
Can you explain to me and to us the existence of the water in our planet? Because we've got fresh water and salty water. Why we've got, does it mean that the, the minerals on the mountains are different under the sea? Where, where is this water coming from? And I heard that it's coming from the rocks, the rocks changing this structure into the water. Can you explain to, to us, please? I can try, Janus, yes. The reason we think water is so important is because it's an amazing solvent. It dissolves things and it is it makes possible the chemical reactions that life as we know it here on Earth follow. And it also has other exciting chemical properties that mean that, uh, well, that there, there are processes that are life-friendly at play. So we think that water is a good hallmark to look for. Now, one of the other things that water tells us if we see liquid water is that the conditions on the place where the water is are are just right for life as well because life, as we know it, needs a very narrow set of uh, parameters in terms of it can't be too hot, it can't be too cold for liquid water to exist. And that means that if a planet has liquid water, those conditions must exist on that planet. And planets that have those conditions sit at a certain distance from their star. It depends on how hot and therefore how big the star is. But the planets that sit at the right distance, which is dubbed the Goldilocks zone, because it's not too hot, not too cold, it's just right, they can have liquid water there. Water is a common molecule in the universe. Most of the water we have on our planet has come here in asteroids and some comets that in the first billion years or so of the Earth's existence all rained down on us and they deposited water here. There was a bit of water in the dust that formed the Earth at the the outset but most of it did rain down in rocks that hit us. Other planets around other stars in other parts of the galaxy and other parts of the universe are going to be almost the same in terms of of how they get together, how they're formed, their composition, and therefore how much water they have. And so it's almost certain that there will be other wet, watery worlds out there, uh, like a home from home for us. But that water will serve the same important chemical processes there as it does here, meaning that if life is one of those inevitabilities, if you give the right conditions for long enough, life pops up, it's likely that life as we know it is going to exist elsewhere in the universe as well, because it seems to have got started here pretty quickly. Okay, thank you so much, Janusz, for, for that, that question. Uh, we have a voice note coming in for Dr. Chris, the naked scientist. I've recently seen a video of ball lightning. Um, so my question is, how, how does that happen? And could that explain a lot of UFO sightings? Uh, this is the speculation, yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how ball lightning works. I, d- I don't know how sure physicists are that they've got the explanation right. But this is a phenomenon where rather than just a fork of electrical uh, ionisation coming down from a cloud to the Earth's surface producing a white light, a lot of heat and a big bang, instead you get this moving uh, sphere of, of... It looks like lightning, but it's a sphere. And it, and it drifts along, moves along and then disappears. One argument I'd heard for it is that it's it's a ball of plasma. When you take a gas or a material and you subject it to a really fierce set of conditions, and when you have a lightning bolt, the temperature of that is about 30,000 degrees C, it's so hot that it strips the atoms apart, so you get full ionisation of the atoms, and you get this state of matter called a plasma. And if 
for some reason that plasma can form a stable ball-like arrangement, then that, I believe, is what we dub ball lightning. But if anyone knows better, do tell me. But certainly because of the strangeness of this phenomenon, and it looks like something ever real in the pictures that I've seen of it, yes, it, it would certainly be something that people could interpret under certain circumstances as, as alien life yeah, or, or a ghost yep. or something. So I'd say very likely. But if anyone has a really good explanation for why ball lightning happens and under what circumstances, do please illuminate me, enlighten me, you could say. <laughs> um, one last question from me, Dr. Chris, and you can give a very short answer. Um, myth or science? You let me know. Uh, so when, when some people have said to me that when their left hand itches, they are sure to receive money. <laughs> but when the right hand itches, they are sure to pay out money. But I've got to tell you, Dr. Chris, that a couple of days before t- uh, payday, my left hand itches. Myth of science. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, th- there's this thing called the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, where if you want something to happen, you tend to describe that it is happening more or less, dependingly. So I would say it's probably anticipation and the fact that you've been brainwashed into believing that to be true. So unsurprisingly, on the odd occasion, it does happen you tend to say aha see i told you so so you're attaching significance to a coincidence uh dr chris smith the naked scientist uh, doc thank you so much it's uh, right. a lovely talking. likewise happy jeremy shopping. happy new year and until next week thank you see you thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.